You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. We are here talking today to Professor Sarath Ranganathan, the Head of Respiratory Medicine and Sleep Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital and the Head of the Department of Paediatrics for the University of Melbourne. We'll be talking to Sarath about asthma, when to call it asthma, and the distinction between preschool wheeze and asthma, including the role of acute and preventative therapies. Welcome, Sarath. Hi, Amy. Um, So we've got some questions to ask you about asthma and wheeze today. A lot of these come from the conversations we have with staff around the hospital. And I guess I want to start by asking, um, there are a lot of names used for wheeze in children. When do we call it asthma? Um, Well, staff have started with a very good question. Um, Wheeze is essentially a symptom and a sign. So um, wheeze in itself is not asthma. It's like uh, a symptom like cough. Um, when we do call it asthma is when it's recurrent, um, often when it's associated with underlying inflammation, and sometimes only when it's responsive to the therapies that are, are used for asthma. Sometimes, not all the time. Um, never say never, never say always. <laughs> There's always variations to this. We have seen some children with asthma who come in with acute exacerbations where the standard therapies don't seem to help. Uh, very much. In fact, um, there's been a name coined for one type of asthma by uh, colleagues in my department who invented a type of asthma called Viper. Um, and uh, that's related to a sort of hypersecretory asthma where bronchodilators don't seem to have much acute uh, efficacy. Okay, so for the general paediatrician who sees a lot of children from preschool into school, mm-hmm. there's sometimes a reluctance to call it asthma when they are preschool um, and they are having viral-induced episodes of wheeze. What are your thoughts around that? Um, I think they're being um, very clever in doing what they're doing and not terming uh, the preschool wheezing as necessarily asthma. Um, We don't actually know the etiology of why some children have very significant episodes of wheezing in relation to viral episodes. Um, but the epidemiology suggests that it's really, really common. In fact, it's the commonest reason to present to a GP. Um, And uh, the treatments we have for it are very poor. So preventing uh, viral-induced wheezing um, with inhaled corticosteroids or or steroids is not particularly effective. Bronchodilators help in in the acute short term. Um, And we also know that many of these children won't grow on to have recurrent episodes um, or chronic persistent symptoms that might suggest asthma in later life. So we believe that this might be related to differences in the airways of these children when they're born. Perhaps they have smaller airways that are more susceptible to inflammation associated with viruses. Um, But we don't necessarily call this asthma itself. Okay, so is the reluctance to call it asthma more around they may not continue to have asthma and we want to avoid particular therapies? Or is it around the etiology aspects? I think a little bit of both. Um, I think um, for purely episodic symptoms, um, the interval is usually clear of symptoms and the asthma medications that we have are much more effective at, at controlling the interval symptoms. The actual episodic symptoms don't respond particularly well, but this doesn't necessarily stop us using those treatments, usually out of desperation 
but we don't really have a good treatment that will attenuate uh, an exacerbation of viral induced wheezing. Okay. So what do you say to families who you've diagnosed with a viral induced wheeze but give their child an asthma plan? <laughs> it's a very common occurrence. I think that um, what uh, we in, in respiratory medicine would often do is to uh, offer bronchodilators if there was uh, recurrent episodes. If there was if there was severe and frequent, we might think of uh, other ways of trying to prevent them. But there is no good one way of preventing viral induced episodes of wheezing. Some have used inhaled corticosteroids, but there are data to show that that is singly not effective in preventing these episodes. Um, there are some studies using um, Montelukast and Lupitrine receptor antagonists, but the data are very weak again. So um, it's our desperation that drives us. Um, there, is, there has been a recent study showing an effective treatment, um, but it's not something that we routinely used. And that was a study that used uh, azithromycin, a macrolide that's anti-inflammatory. Um, and that, in the context of uh, acute episodes, um, was reasonably effective at uh, attenuating some of the episodes. We don't use it because we know that even a single dose of azithromycin can have very profound effects on the gut microbiome. So um, the one or two patients that I've um, resorted to using that strategy have been those who've had very, very severe and very, very frequent episodes. And by severe, I mean not just bring them into hospital, often bring them into ICU. And the acute uh, drugs that we use in our emergency department have not been particularly successful in those children either. So it's our desperation that drives us in that scenario. So then, Sarah, what is the role for steroids in preschool children who wheeze? That's another excellent question and one to which I'm sure you and uh, people listening to this podcast will be looking for a nice, clear answer. Unfortunately, I'm able to give you a nice, clear answer. Um, and, and that's because it's a standard practice to use um, oral corticosteroids in emergency departments all around the world for children who present with acute wheezing. But there have been a, a couple of very large studies that show that that practice has no impact, um, certainly in terms of uh, the duration of hospital stay. There was a recent study that was conducted in Australia, in, in Western Australia, that did show an eff uh, effect or benefit of using oral corticosteroids in the emergency department. But I think that was a, a benefit of being able to be discharged about two hours earlier. So not really a clinically important um, benefit. People are looking um, for subpopulations that might be responding to the steroids, but generally speaking, not particularly effective. The uh, steroids are good with the eosinophilic type inflammation. And um, the inflammation in children who have viruses is normally not eosinophilic, it's usually uh, predominantly neutrophilic in, in the acute scenario. So it may be that this sort of anti-inflammatory that we're used to using is just the wrong type of anti-inflammatory to, to use. It may be one reason why azithromycin has some benefit in that situation, but we haven't really got around to using it in acute situations yet. So in very practical mm. terms, if you had a preschool child who was wheezing, needing salbutamol every hour or two um, and admitted to the ward who had not been given steroids in the emergency department, would you give them, if they were still in hospital a day later or? We'd give them steroids. Yeah. And the reason is, is we, we don't have other treatments to, to give. And uh, unfortunately, 
um, there doesn't appear to be a pipeline of uh, uh, drugs that are going to become available in this context. And uh, most of the uh, big uh, pharmaceutical companies that work in the respiratory space have concentrated in recent times on COPD. So and despite our encouragement, there hasn't been a lot of new research in this area. And very disappointing, given the fact that, that I mentioned it's the commonest reason to present to your GP. It's the commonest reason to be admitted to hospital at any age. So it causes enormous amounts of morbidity and um, lost productivity uh, for families. It's a big problem. So in general, although we're not quite sure about their utility and their effect, that population that gets admitted to hospital, it's, it's reasonable to give them steroids and that's our practice Okay, yes, it's, a, it's an appropriate <laughs> practice, but purely out of desperation, not out of any uh, honest uh, appreciation that the drugs might work. Uh, and certainly um, in that sort of scenario, um, unlike the sort of classic atopic a a child with asthma in a, who's um, a bit older who responds fairly quickly to corticosteroids, I, I wouldn't be confident you see such dramatic improvements. Point um, taken. <laughs> Um, so then for acute exacerbations of asthma, what's the role of ipratropium bromide? Um, well, it's an anticholinergic drug and, uh, uh, and studies show it's a, a good add-on therapy um, with salbutamol in the acute context. And some people use it initially as kind of a burst therapy mm. um, and others wonder about its role after that. Is it clearly beneficial in one of those contexts or another, or is all of the uncertain? Um, there's a bit of uncertainty, but I think uh, the, the studies have shown benefit when it's used as an adjuvant to, to salbutamol in the acute situation. By the way, I hate the term burst therapy. <laughs> I've been trying to ban it, but unsuccessfully, everyone seems to use that term. <laughs> I I'm, not sure, uh, I'm not sure what else we can call it. Um, it's catchy and easy to say, so yeah. I think people revert to Common language, <laughs> regardless of... <laughs> my, my heart wants to burst out of my chest when I hear that term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we maybe should be more specific. Um, so I guess we touched on preventers before and I just want to come back to them. When should we, we be thinking about preventers? In which children um, with ongoing symptoms or those with particularly bad acute episodes and end up in ICU? I think if children have got interval symptoms, then it's reasonable to, to try a preventer, bearing in mind um, that the preventer is predominantly to control symptoms. So if you haven't got much in the way of symptoms, you don't really need a preventer, uh, bearing in mind again that people don't always recognize their symptoms in young children. So it's often worth a, a trial. So interval symptoms include activity-related, exercise-related symptoms, uh, symptoms uh, on exposure to allergens, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, symptoms in relation to uh, cold air, pollens, uh, e even foods, and any of those sorts of interval symptoms usually respond pretty well to inhaled corticosteroids. Um, we've mentioned before, uh, when you're desperate, when you've got frequent severe episodic wheezing, then that's uh, it's probably appropriate to give those a, a trial. Uh, again, because sometimes uh, families may not have recognised some of the interval symptoms that, that can occur. Okay. Um, there's been some concern lately about the children who get multiple courses of steroids for their wheeze during a year. And 
potentially using preventers in those children to lessen the exposure to the oral steroid dosing. What are your thoughts around that? Um, well, there's certainly a significant impact on growth, um, even with only a few courses cumulative of oral corticosteroids. So one of the aims of therapy would be to avoid courses of oral corticosteroids. Um, substituting that with inhaled corticosteroids might seem to be appropriate, but again, uh, I mentioned again that we don't really have much evidence that they can attenuate acute exacerbation. So um, we're back at, back into that territory of not having wonderful treatments. And um, for some reason, most general pediatricians seem to want to blame me personally for that situation. <laughs> so well, that's why you're off. here today, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I would create a, a wonderful treatment if I could, um, but there isn't one. So mm. I guess that's the point we might finish it on. Is there anything that we can be more optimistic about on the horizon that might change the management of asthma in the future? Well, one thing that might change our approach to asthma, uh, particularly if we were thinking about preventing it, is the recognition that its onset is very early in life. There's an important study published um, about a year and a half ago now from a the COPSAC group, which is based in uh, Denmark, in Copenhagen. They measured lung function in babies using some research techniques and followed those children up to they were seven years of age. And they found that the children who subsequently developed asthma, the classic sort of asthma that we'd all recognize, already had lung function abnormalities at one month of age. And what that probably highlights is that uh, asthma has its origins in utero. So there are lots of people on campus um, conducting some fairly exciting research in that space, looking at factors that predict asthma. And, uh, and there are certainly some factors that might potentially be modifiable um, aspects of, in, in maternal health and maternal microbiome, for example, uh, the exposure of uh, mothers to antibiotics and, and such like. So prevention may be uh, the better part of cure. Some good news. Mm -mm. Well, thanks for your time today, Sarah. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.